What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, Digest listeners. This is Amanda Clue, Editor-in-Chief of Eater. Dan and I do not have a new episode this week, but we have a fun surprise. My colleague at Vox Media, Peter Kafka, runs a podcast called Recode Media, and he recorded a really interesting episode recently with Food52 founders Amanda Hesser and Meryl Stubbs. I've long followed everything they do. I've read Food52 since it launched over 10 years ago, and I've been really interested and excited to watch their growth and their evolution. I think when they started, I was mostly looking at them for their recipes and maybe their stories, but now it's become my go-to for whenever I'm buying Christmas presents or wedding gifts for someone. And it was great. And I think a little inspiring to see that they were able to sell a major stake of their company for $100 million recently. So Peter has a long conversation with them about where they've been and where they're going and their perspective on the food space right now. So I hope you enjoy. Give it a listen. My guests here today are people I wanted to talk to for quite a while. Amanda Hesser, Meryl Stubbs. They are the co-founders of Food52. If you follow my writing in addition to the podcast, you know these guys sold a majority stake. Amanda's looking at me very, very seriously. Didn't sell her whole company. Sold a majority stake in their company <laughs> last fall to the Churning <laughs> Group after founding it how long ago? In 2009. 2009. So, so 10, 10 years. years mm-hmm. Grinding it out. Overnight success. Overnight success. <laughs> Rocket ship. I will. So that's Amanda talking, and that's Meryl. Say hi, Meryl. Hi. Hi. I am a, I will say I'm a little, I think I said this when I wrote it, I was a little surprised that this worked out for you guys just because, <laughs> and Amanda always knows I'm, I'm, uh, I'm candid. When, when you first told me about what you were doing, I said, that sounds interesting. You've got a recipe site. There are a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll probably have to get really, really big. It didn't seem like you ever got really, really big. At one point, you started focusing on commerce. A lot of people were trying to sell stuff as well. I thought, all right, we got it really big for that. And I just sort of imagined that you guys would end up being absorbed by a bigger thing or decide at some point that it wasn't going to work out. Obviously, I was completely wrong. So, in <laughs> did, addition, you think, did you think we didn't know the food space? I thought that you guys knew the food space pretty well, but lots of people know lots of spaces. It doesn't yeah. mean their companies succeed. Most companies don't succeed. So that's what I wanted to talk about, how you got into the business, how you made it work, what I got wrong. Well, I, I but I do think that that's worth pausing yeah. on because I do think like the domain expertise that we came to this with allowed us to see the opportunity in a way that just an entrepreneur just, you know, like kind of diving into the food space wouldn't necessarily. So let's talk about your expertise. Great. Um, what do you I knew know? I knew about Amanda Hester before she was an entrepreneur because I read her stuff in the New York Times. Um, and you seemed like you had a particularly cool job. You got to write recipes. You had this column that was part recipes, part sort of New York singles diary. <laughs> I remember sort of swooning over. I thought it was really cool. Uh, Meryl, I didn't know until afterwards. But so why don't we just quickly walk through what you were doing prior to launching the company? Yeah. I was swooning over Amanda's yeah, exactly. stories, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were both immersed in this world. Uh, we both um, went to cooking school. 
I cooked professionally. Merrill had a catering business in Boston. Um, but I also then worked at the New York Times. And yeah, I mean, I had this sort of dream job because I got to travel around the world. I got to write about kind of whatever I wanted in the food world. I mean, you, the part you mentioned was a particular column that I wrote yeah. for the magazine that was kind of like a food blog before blogs. I mean, um, you were a standout yeah. food writer at the New York Times. Um, there was not, not a long list of them. You had what seemed like sort of the dream job. Most people would stay in that job for a very long time. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And um, but I kind of figured out over time that I was not cut out for uh, <laughs> corporate life. Okay. You were there for a while. Though. I was. I mean, yeah, I mean, like a years decade now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no, I was there, you know, yeah, my, yeah, I was a staff writer for You're like decade. one of those lawyers who figures out like eight years after after law school <laughs> and being a partner. I don't but it, when do they don't make partners. Yeah, okay, exactly. But my husband <laughs> pointed out the other day. A, a decade at, at the Times is not that long, actually. Yeah. I mean, now it sounds yeah. like a crazy long time in any yeah. job, but actually m- many of my peers who started at the same time are still there. Lifers. They're lifers, So yeah. you guys both know food. You know the food industry. Yeah. You had a sense of sort of the economics, at least of restaurants, I would imagine, mm-hmm. and other parts of the food industry, which is different than knowing about publishing a website about food and eventually selling cookware and other products. Well, I think what we really knew, we knew all of those things, or at least some some things about all of those things. But I think the thing that we did know and we were very close to for a long time that allowed us to see this opportunity was we were kind of looped into this community of real people who cook. Outside of restaurants, outside of food food media, mm-hmm. in terms of the experts, you know, it's outside of cookbook authors. We were covering, like, real people. What are they cooking? We were spending time with real people in our in our personal lives. I mean, we're both very much home cooks at heart, even though we train professionally. I don't think we either either of us had aspirations to work, you know, in restaurants for our careers. Right. So we both gravitated towards really sort of the mentality, the mindset, the needs, the wants of the home cook. And that's very much what we uh, were paying attention to and talking to friends and going to, you know, underground dinner parties and food swaps and and covering all of this sort of like energy that was bubbling and really wasn't being reflected online except with the proliferation of food blogs, which was happening. Yeah, I mean— Food writing and like the need for recipes has been around for a very long time. Yep, and so it's, it's a one long... of the first things the internet figured out is this would be a yeah. really good way to swap recipes. Right. And I mean, it's it's a sort of long standing tradition in journalism and or service journal, journalism to have food writing and recipes. And so we knew, I mean, that need was not going to go away, but it was something else. It was something bigger that we started seeing this seismic shift in culturally that people were seeing food. Like beyond just the kitchen, it was like it was becoming like how they ate, ate and like where they ate and where they shopped and, you know, how they designed their kitchens, where they, you know, ate when they traveled. That was all becoming like a, a big part of their identities. Um, and so we felt like that was what was not being responded to. It was like online, there were these recipe sites and it felt just so narrow and so not... Um, it wasn't taking advantage, in our view, of, you know, the sort of this 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 larger cultural shift and this opportunity to really create a world where you you saw food in a broader context. So you guys start 
pitching this concept when, 2008-ish? No, actually not till 2000. Well, no. So to, what we did was in, sorry, 2008, we sold was, was it, it? No, it was actually was it early, early 2009. We sold a book deal yeah. to bootstrap the building of the that was the intent. Concept. We're gonna yeah. we're gonna fund this by yeah. selling we a book. We pitched that yeah. to publishers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. or a publisher. Yeah, <laughs> and like I had spent the year before working on a very different non-food startup, so right. I was already in. That had you know, a great like, name. I, what was it called? Seawinkle. Seawinkle. Google it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I think that was where, like, you know. You you said, like, well, you know, there's a big difference between being, like, a writer and then building, like, a business. But, you know, I think that that interest was already there. And also seeing what it was, you know, what it was like to sort of dive into a startup kind of had a sense that this was a direction that I, like, in a world that where I felt comfortable. And Meryl and I then, we had this idea. We felt like, well, this is, this is what we want to do. Um, there tend to be two avenues people take when they start a company, and that is either they bootstrap or they take an idea and they build a great story around it. And, you know, yes, they use some data, but a lot of it is kind of... Tell, I'm going to tell you a story, and you're yeah. going to believe mm-hmm. in it, and you're going to believe in me, and you're going to throw some money at me. And if you're smart, you realize you may never see the money again, but that's the way it goes. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're kind of like two different personality types for entrepreneurs. And we happen to be the proof of—we'd rather do a proof of concept and, and bootstrap and be scrappy and then sell once we know exactly what we're selling. So you're the first founders I've ever met who, who started their company by selling a, a book. <laughs> So I cool. wonder if we're the only ones. That what was, be interesting. What, was the, what yeah. was the book? What was the name? Uh, it was the Food 52 Okay, cookbook. so from yeah. the beginning. Yeah. We're branding this. We're yeah. selling it. It was yeah. actually two books. We got a yes. two-book deal. And we convinced the publisher, who was this really great forward-thinking guy named Bob Miller, who was working at HarperCollins, but he was starting a new imprint there, which was kind of embracing this new model of giving smaller advances and bigger cuts on the back end. Mm-hmm. And he was he was looking for, I think, very sort of current ideas. And so he immediately gravitated towards this idea of using digital media to create, you know, a print product. And he basically said, so how many, how many books do you want to write? And we said, let's start with two. And by the way, can you give us the advance for both? Because we need to build this website. Quickly. <laughs> so we were able to get $100,000 in cash right away. Yeah. So does the and website was, go up before the book goes out? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You okay. have to, it has to because that's actually we're using the site in to order to produce book. well to produce the content yeah. for the book and to like dr- bring people together and to be able to contribute recipes and test them and like have these recipe contests and like really prove this concept of like that you can – you know, crowdsource and curate and create this community-driven hub with great quality content. So you sell a book proposal Mm -hmm. so you can fund a website so that you can create content that you can use to then produce that book. Exactly. Yeah. And with the ideal, (laughs) you know, idea that in a perfect world, it all, like, not only do we get a great book out of it, but we get the, you know, foundation of a great company. Mm -hmm. And we can keep going. And so how'd that go? So it, it was. Went. It was so easy. Um, <laughs> that was, so this is that 2000, was 2009, New York City. <laughs> yeah. There's a little bubble, uh, not bubble, but a bubbling of sort of interest in the internet that hasn't yeah. been there prior to then. So you get companies like Tumblr and Foursquare coming yeah. out of it. Um, I always think of Twitter sort of as a New York company because yeah. they're getting money from from Union Square Ventures. Um, and just a little. It's not. It's, it's definitely not a, a, a hotbed of tech, but there's a little bit of interest in it. So what point did you have to go out and then ask 
actual investors for money? So we launched in September of 2009, and it immediately got traction. Actually, it got traction before it launched. So we felt like we were on to something, and we could see that <laughs> at some point in the next probably 12 months, we would start running out of money yeah. um, unless we suddenly figured out a you know new and exciting revenue stream, which we were. We did do advertising, but we you know it was pretty minimal, and because we were really focused, our, it was just the two of us. So we were focusing our time really on building this you know the brand and the and the community. So so in the beginning of two, I would say like spring of 2010 is when we started talking to investors. And all along, you know, there were a handful of people who we were having conversations with who were, you know, giving us advice and guidance. And um, and actually, it was sort of like, you know, speaking to what you were just talking about, it being this kind of sort of burgeoning, you know, tech community in New York. That was sort of, it was sort of great days because you could, you know, we could call up, you know, Kenny Lair and he would take a meeting with us. Yeah, you could get meetings um, with a lot of people. You might yeah. Be able was, to, you could so get everybody now. in a room, basically. Yeah, yeah. You could go to the New York Tech meetup and meet just about yeah, everybody exactly. who was doing tech in New York. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. Back mm-hmm. in those days. Um, so I, what I was trying to get to is when yeah. you're pitching this out to other people, are they giving you the same cynical, burnt-out response that I'm giving you, which is, oh, nice, a food site, there's a million of them, and you're going to get steamrolled by pick your giant internet company? Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, definitely a lot of people said that, but it was the ones who did not and who took the time to really understand the two of us, get to know us, understand our vision and why this could be different, who were the people who ultimately invested. And and those are the investors we wanted. I actually think in some ways the doubts were less around food as a space. Yeah. It was actually more about, like, we, we felt at that time, and I think looking back still feel this way, that investors— of that era were not focused at all on brand and did not value it. And it is a hard thing to quantify, right? Um, And it also, for the most part, you cannot really have hyper growth of a company if you're building a brand. It's just, you know, brands are not born overnight. And um, So if you're growing really fast, it probably means you don't have a strong brand. It means you're growing for some other reason. It probably means you're putting, uh, you're doing a fair amount of paid marketing. I mean, I'm making like, uh-huh. you know, sort of a Great. big generalization, but I think we've all seen this this play out that, you know, if you want to have really fast growth, you are going to have to kind of pay customers to pay attention to you as opposed to wait for them to discover you or hear about you from their friends in, in this very kind of genuine and in our in our view, lasting way. It just takes more time. And we felt like that that we were we wanted to build a company that had meaning and that people you know meaning to people and that they felt like emotionally connected to you can't create that emotional connection on like the first time they click through to your site it takes time so just to continue the the cynical slash devil advocate okay uh, role that I always have. Um, <laughs> every time I talk to someone who runs a company and I ask them about the future or wherever things are going to shake out, they say, you got to have a strong brand. We have a strong brand. Maybe every one of them does. Um, but again, I'm sure investors here, people say, well, we're going to have a strong brand or we have a strong brand <laughs> and that's going to solve this problem. I'm assuming that when you gave someone that very effective speech, you just gave me a lot of times they said, yeah, but still. Yeah. That's my devil's advocate. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, yeah, mm-hmm. probably more more so than they would now when I do think that's become sort of a fashionable thing to say. I don't even know if we were saying it in that way, though, at the time. I don't think we were. It, it was more about, again, sort of the broader vision and this way of serving the consumer, 
which at the time was really readers, that we were talking about. It was more of the approach rather than we are going to build a brand, even though that's what ultimately we were thinking about. I don't think we were using that language at the time. And was the plan advertising is never going to be sufficient enough from the get-go and we're going to absolutely move into other stuff or did that come later? The former. Yeah, Yeah, the former. And I would say we were just really like super focused on our reader and consumer and and like giving them a great experience. We we were betting on the fact that if we could create this world where we were serving people in this comprehensive fashion that was not, that no other brand was in our space, that the revenue model would evolve and follow and actually build a bigger company than you could if you were just focused on advertising or just focused on, you know, affiliate sales or commerce. And at that time, actually, like we had, it's funny because we, in our old decks, we do have commerce, (laughs) Um, but it took like a lot of different forms over time because, frankly, commerce was, you know, evolving, you know, moment to moment. Like, for instance, affiliate sales were not a thing that Lots of companies did, and so dropping a link I into mean, a story. Amazon, yeah, we yeah. barely this, launched it. Right, we recommend yeah. this pan. You can buy it through Amazon. If you buy it, we get X amount. Of yeah, work. I mean, very few companies, very few were, were drop shipping at that time. Um, we'll explain what drop shipping is. Oh, sorry, drop well, sh- it's one of my favorite yeah. terms. I just want you to explain. Okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> it sounds like the future. <laughs> uh, I always think of drop kick, like someone's just dropping the package and <laughs> kicking it off, kicking it in your direction. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Kind of like that. Well, it's sort of like an order comes. In other words, we are the, as a drop shipper, we are the merchant of record. So if, if you order on our site, like we process the order, the shipping label and, and order slip goes to directly to the merchant. They package it for us and they ship it off for us. And then if you have a customer care issue, it comes to us. Right. So, so in other words, we're the, dropping the, fr- the, right. the the order to the, the actual you're shipper. You're the front of the store, except there's nothing in your store. That, that's right. That's there's no, inventory. There's no right. inventory. That's correct. But, you know, it's more complicated than that, obviously. It's like, you know, it's not... Like we just, you know, sign up with, you know, a merchant that or a vendor we're working with and, they, you know, we're agreeing to how many, sure. even even if it's, you know, just their products, you know, we're, we're doing um, projections of like how, how many units we'll be able to sell. And there, like there's a whole like relationship. I mean, there is that. like a really like fast and loose and like very bare bones drop shipping that I think you see a lot on Instagram now where it's some man or woman somewhere and they put up an ad on Instagram and maybe they've never even seen the product before, but someone in China is going to send it and the entire transaction sort of happens away from them. They just basically bought an Instagram ad. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I actually think that was sort of the impression of what drop shipping like was with it. It was like kind of impersonal and that the person selling you the product didn't really have this connection to yeah. it. The way we do it is very different. And I would say that the way other you know people do drop ship these days is... I mean, I, I think it's becoming this more um, common model because, you know, manufacturers are realizing that, like, the that the companies selling their products don't necessarily want, you know, to hold the inventory yeah. and that they can, you know, that, that there are just new models that have, have, have evolved since we started our company and that are continuing to evolve. I mean, when we started Commerce, which was 2013, there were many companies that we now sell their products, but who at that point said, no, sorry, we don't drop ship or we won't drop ship for you. So I was just looking at this article that my colleague wrote, um, but it reads like I wrote it uh, from 2013 when you guys said, we're now selling stuff. Yeah. And it said, oh, go ahead, roll your eyes. Another content company that says they're doing commerce because apparently this was a mini trend at the time. Um, but this now is your business, right? I, I saw some stat from somewhere that said you 75% of your revenue is now 
Mm-hmm. It's commerce. It's you yeah. selling something. Yeah. And we something have our that own, you, your own brand or someone else's. Y- yes. And we have our own product line now. Okay. So we are, we are still an ad-based business here. So we're going to take a quick break so you can hear from a fine Recode <laughs> Media sponsor. We'll be right back. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Back here with Meryl Stubbs and Amanda Hesser, Food 52, which, as we said, is a great success despite my initial cynicism. <laughs> Have you come around completely, you think? It seems like it's worked. <laughs> we think so. <laughs> it's, and I, I was on the site today. There's a great-looking cauliflower soup that I think I'm going to make. It looks incredibly easy. Onions and cauliflower, that's it? Oh, Put yeah. Put it in a blender? Mm-hmm. I'm making that. Yep. I know that one. So in between starting off with ads and now getting to this place where you're mostly commerce, did you take any other right or left turns that didn't work out? Or was this sort of a stand, a, a relatively linear progression for you guys? Well, we tried some things that didn't work out, but I we've never— done anything that we would consider a pivot in the true sense. You didn't put up a paywall or... No. No. I mean, we we built a couple apps that, you know, didn't really go anywhere. As one does. Yeah. But other than that... We had a food news section at some point. We did. That's true. That's true. Did Did you have a Facebook moment? We... Thankfully not. No. Why not? I mean, we— When I mean, everyone we still was telling ha- you we, that you needed to go to Facebook to build your and business. And do everything on Facebook. We just—yeah, yeah, we've kind of been pretty steady. But we—you know, obviously we built a Facebook community, and we are still very active there and still believe in that. But we weren't—we weren't about to, you know, start shifting our whole business. I mean, the same thing with Snapchat. Everyone—there was the period when everyone was like, you have to do Snapchat, you know, all the time. And, and we just felt like it didn't— it didn't feel like our brand, like the right kind of uh, environment for our brand, and so we What's your we TikTok held off. Strategy? Well, that we were sort of TBD. like, we're, yeah, TBD. <laughs> but Instagram, like it, you know, was such an obvious it was created for yeah, us. Yeah, I, I do. So. <laughs> so, so you know, I think we we tend to, I would say, we are trend diverse um, because we want to carve our own path, and it's it's hard to maintain that discipline, especially you know when. You know, you have a lot of people kind of barking people at you. People in your ear. And mm-hmm. then also, if you keep going down one path, you may be missing stuff, right? So mm-hmm. you do want the opportunity or flexibility to try stuff. You guys are still a lean company. How many How many employees? We're about 95. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you do want to take a stab at Instagram and figure out, do you have to like, how do you, how do you figure out sort of the mechanics of, all right, we're going to take someone who's already doing some other job and have them move over to Instagram or are we going to hire an Instagram person? How do you, how do you work former. that out? The yeah. former. Yeah, we're always, you know. So a good example of that is on 
on Monday we're going to launch Home 52. So we got the, that Instagram handle. And um, so when and you so hear this, you can go look at Home 52 on Instagram. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. So uh, we, our existing social team is just going to tackle that in addition to all the other stuff they're doing. And then we'll see what kind of traction it gets and what kind of, you know, how much work and time it demands. So between 2009 and 2019, was there a moment where you guys thought, this is not going to work out and we're going to have to figure something else out? Or did you feel reasonably, for Peter Kafka aside, we think we've had this figured out? I don't think we ever had um, that moment of like, this isn't going to work. I think we had plenty of moments of worrying about cash. So uh, how, how close did you get to running out? Very <laughs> Days? I mean, for no, us, no, no, no. I was gonna very, say. I was just gonna say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, compared to um, what we hear, yeah, not very. We weren't that close to the sun, but it, but it felt to us like we were. And at that point, do you go? We got to go. I mean, so eventually, you took on some debt, right? You raised, I think, twenty million, include some debt. Was that was well, debt we, what got you over that, or or? Well, we what? did the debt because it wasn't very expensive mm-hmm. at the time, and also, you know, it was a way to. You know, bring in some cash that we could, you know, put towards things without having to, you know, go through another kind of, you know, complicated raise, diluting mm-hmm. all the shareholders. Yeah. You know, it, it, it seemed to, to us not a, a like the the necessary alternative, but actually an appealing alternative. So yeah, it was strategic you, rather than, you know, and, sorry, no, reactive. <laughs> and when and when you were at that moment, you're like, oh, we are flying too close to the sun. We're in, what turns that around? I mean, I think those moments happened for us. I can't think of any exceptions when we were already kind of in the process of talking to investors usually or or thinking about— Because um, you don't want to be raising money when you're running out of Well, money. yeah, exactly. I mean, we always tried to get, get ahead of it and, and, you know, raise from a position of strength. I mean, I, I'm trying to remember before we got the Whole Foods deal what— our cash situation was like because that was a pretty big influx. Oh yeah, early on. Well, before we raised our first our seed round, we had a moment of, I would say, yeah, that was a low moment. Yeah, it was a low moment where we we were just concerned. We, we were we had a lot of interest, but we were having trouble getting it closed. Mm-hmm. And I think you know somebody who was interested in investing and who did invest was you know kind of sharing a concern that like you know deals are all about momentum and if you you know if you can't get this closed soon that's going to it's just going to be tougher and tougher and like to Meryl's point that she just made like we didn't feel at all that we were we felt like we had a real company on our hands yeah. and we, and it had amazing potential but it was like just it, could, it couldn't <laughs> run on air yeah. and so yeah, it was just like that. That was a moment where we were like, "Oh my God, if we can't, if are we going to be able to get this closed? If not, what are we going to do?" And then it, you know, as these things, you know, these inflection points. I think it was like the next week. You know, somebody finally was like, you know, basically put, they put their stake <laughs> in the ground. Or yeah, like we or we. I can't remember. We kind of just hit that critical mass of a round where we were like, okay, we can see we can see the path to closing, yeah. and we can actually set a date. Um, you mentioned but, Kenny Lair, Lair Ventures is one of your investors. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, they, yeah, yeah. He led our first our, our seed round. I had an uncomfortable, but I think successful interview with him here. <laughs> Why uncomfortable? Because <laughs> um, when Kenny is upset with you, he tells you mm. in no in no uncertain terms. It was good. Um, <laughs> we mentioned accomplished. We mentioned Instagram, um, and that seems to be an obvious place for you guys, and it uh-huh. has worked out um, not spending a lot of resources on Facebook. I used to ask people when they came in, you know, about their whole platform strategy, and now people seem less interested in it. But but where are you guys 
publishing or doing business out beyond your website? Instagram is our biggest channel outside of our sort of all of our, you know, owned and operated. Email, which is obviously our own, is a huge, hugely important channel for us in terms of readership, revenue from the shop, and also just engagement, maintaining, you know, maintaining that sort of back and forth dialogue that's so important to our business. Uh, But Instagram is, you know, there's so many great things about it that are just sort of perfectly tailored to what we do. And and it just gives Mm -hmm. us the capabilities to do so many things that are sort of already part of our day-to-day and put them on a different platform, tweak them slightly, you know, whether it's creating a different cut of a video that we've done that's going up on the site, you know, or on Facebook that's, you know, shorter and and more kind of, um, I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for? Snappy. That's the word. Uh, (laughs) Does a Food52 Instagram post look substantially different than another food publication's Instagram post? Can I tell them apart? I mean, Tasty at one point pioneered that very specific view, which everyone took, everyone copied. Um, Would I be able to tell that's a Food52 Instagram post if I didn't see the label? Well, that's a really good question because I think, you know, there are definitely— in the, the the food space, there are certain accounts where they have a very particular like thing that they a look, um, or certain kinds of foods that they do. Right, we don't. Ours is more general, and actually, it was really our Instagram account was very much built by celebrating um, regrams yeah. of people from our community. And so the there is a there's a consistency to the aesthetic, but there's definitely not that like identifiable like this is our look. And so it's much more about like the photo and its caption, and then the caption is like the the voice of our brand, which is kind of like you know lively and and funny, enthusiastic, and so I think it's more that. Whereas if you come to our site, I think there's a more particular kind of visual aesthetic, and we just felt like the whole beauty of Instagram is like this ability to kind of like celebrate others and have it really be this kind of community focus for us, and we'll do the same thing with Home Fifty Two. But in terms of like like where we our, our goal is to like meet people where they're at, right? And so Instagram is a big uh, way of doing that. Email. We're looking at text. Um, you know, Pinterest actually has been a bit of a mystery for us. Yeah. Um, it does fine for us, but it's an area that we feel like has a lot of potential to grow if, if only we can figure it out. Um, Have you expressed that to them recently? Yes. yes. Yeah. We're making some strides, and then off. You know, offline. So you know, we've done tons of events over the years. We've done pop ups, but we're planning. A uh, physical location, and I say an that, actual store. I, yeah. Well, we're not mm. using the word store <laughs> because we feel like it's it's different from that. I, we're um, the placeholder is an outpost. Okay, an experience. Mm. It's a and there's it's, a retail component to uh-huh. it, but there's also yes, a a an ability to participate and and watch and be inspired and ask questions and, and gather. Yes, exactly. Amanda just yeah. raised her eyebrows. Then. All right, I'm there. <laughs> I'm coming. Um, I wrote about you in the fall when you sold a majority stake <laughs> in the company, which I, think, which I think is the same as selling the company. Uh, it's now owned by the Chernin Group. Um, how did you get to that point beyond the fact that you built a company over 10 years? At what point? Or is this you going to the Chernin Group? or is someone, they, Are they coming to you? Were you considering other sales? I think you have to tell your story. Well, yeah. Um, so in October of 2018, they reached out. And at the time, we had just launched our, the first product in our product line, and we were 
in Q4, which is our busiest quarter. It represents 40% of our revenue for the year. And I was like, sorry, can't talk. Let's try in the new year. And <laughs> it's one of and those, it worked. <laughs> it's one of those things where I kind of look back and like, you know, want to smack myself on the forehead. Like, what was I thinking? But um, and then we talked. We did talk in January. They followed up, which yeah. was great. And I think actually sort of a good sign Says that they, they really, you know, it was a sincere outreach, not just like a gathering data for some other deal. So we had a conversation, and it happened to coincide with a you know interest from other growth equity as well as strategics. Um, you know, I think that any any interesting growing media company is certainly getting inbound from strategics these days because media is in turmoil. But so that wasn't wait, wait, like unpack, a big... Wait, unpack that for a unpack second. Unpack that, yeah. Media is in turmoil usually gets translated as no one wants to buy a media company. And I think there's well, a counter to that, which we're going to talk about. But Well, I think, I think strategics are looking for media companies that have interesting and innovative revenue models. We ch- definitely check that box. Yep. And also there's the, you know, there are also media companies who are looking for inexpensive yep. properties. And so it just, you know, all of these things kind of um, coincided at the same time. But, you know, our conversations with the Turning Group were just like we instantly connected with them and felt like they understood our, like, no, they are, they are, they're the first to say, like, we're not food experts, um, but they really understand community and building a, a meaningful brand and media. And they're really, um, they know a bit about commerce and are really interested in, in wanting to be sort of more engaged in that space. And so, and, you know, if you look across their portfolio, it might seem like we might seem like an oddball. You but know, they're all kind of oddball. There's well, headspace, which is meditation. There's a yeah, there's but, a meat yes, meat, meat eater, which meat is eater. great. Yep. and I mean they're all they just they're all, owned, they own Barstool until yes. just recently. Yeah, um, which is has nothing to do with any of those things. It's for bros who like sports and people but, who like those bros. The common thread is that they have all of these brands have extremely passionate, loyal followings. Yeah. And so I think, you know, once we saw that, you know, it just felt like such a, a natural fit. And so we, you know, continued the conversation. And and yeah, and so basically almost uh, a year to the day later is when we closed. So it's 10 years of building a company. It's a mm-hmm. lot of work. You guys have families. I'm assuming there was an offer from someone to just sell the entire thing and you could have some sort of employment agreement, but then you're done. You don't own the company anymore. You guys have structured a deal. We're used to and This was the sticking point I think we were having back and forth last <laughs> fall. Is you guys still own a, a significant stake in the company. Churning Group owns it, but you guys have a – so if the company does better, presumably at some point Churning Group might find another buyer for it. You guys will benefit for it. I can see all the reasons to do that, but I can also see you guys saying – this is really hard. We should do something else. This 10 years building a thing is a ton of work. Nothing great that you do is easy, you know? And I think that's like, (laughs) yes, there have been many very hard moments, but also we're getting to build something that we want and that we think that is like needed in the world. And and that's like super cool and super lucky. So yeah, we want to keep doing that, you know? And also like we're in this, it's not like we... We went to business school and we were like, oh, here's an opportunity in this market. Let's go after it. Which is and fine. Then, and which is totally fine. I, mean, I wish some people, more people would be it. honest about saying that, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. It is. This, is. this is why instead of making up a story about how they wanted to sell well, it. Well, it's, it's fine, except that when you're up against those companies fundraising and investors are like, well, that, you know, here's the trustworthy MBA versus like the experts like that. That, you know, was a frustration for us. But anyway, I'm kind of um, digressing. Um, You know, I think that for us, you know, this is 
the industry that we're obsessed with and that we want to, you know, do innovative things, in it, you know, and, and I think that, you know, having, so for us, like the churning group, like they're supportive of that and they are super excited to like get behind it. So to, to us, this, that's why like we weren't looking to get out. Sure, we were, you know, <laughs> after 10 years, you want to de-risk or you want, you know, your early employees or your early investors to uh, be able to um, <laughs> sort of get some money back. Realize, yeah, 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 mm-hmm. yeah be, have, have their investment recognized. recognized yeah. yeah. But and it, of course, we sleep better at night now. Right. I mean, that that's the other big difference is that, you know, when we got to those moments of worrying about runway, Except in the very beginning, we were, you know, we were the stewards of this group of people and this business. And the buck stopped with us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now we have support and support from people that we really like and we really love working with. I was going to ask how life has changed besides the fact that you guys were able to get some money personally, presumably, and, and distribute money to your investors and employees. Um, any other practical changes in the way the business operates now that you're no longer the owner? Well, so the other thing, and I think this is something that we didn't recognize immediately with TCG, is that, you know, it's led by people who have operated businesses. Yeah. And it's astonishing how big of a difference that, that, that makes us like sort of day-to-day partners. And, I, you know, they've... Are, like already like helped us figure out a bunch of things that were like, I I just, I'm not sure our previous board would have been able to necessarily, I mean, they may have wanted to try to help us with, but like it's, there's just something different about, you know, working with people who have, you know, run teams, done a lot of hiring, you know, reorganized things and like, you know, just, you know, they helped us basically come up. We were trying to revamp our, our strategic planning and we kind of got stuck. And they were the kids came in and they were like, well, hey, we, how, you know, here, take a look at this method that we've used in the past. See what you think. And we were like, oh. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that is fantastic. Thank, Thank you very you. much. <laughs> we're going to just take that and implement that whole thing. We're at an interesting time because I think well, lots of media companies are trying to find other revenue sources. A lot of them are interested in commerce. This one certainly is that I'm working at. Um, you guys have figured out commerce to a degree. There's also been this big run in direct-to-consumer stuff where you see brands that don't have any media going out and sort of creating their own brand on Instagram. Um, A lot of them have grown very quickly. And then you're also seeing a lot of them sort of hit the public market. The Casper just had problems. There's a lot of now skepticism about, oh, maybe you can't grow these retail things. So on the one hand, there's, I think, a lot of optimism on the media side about retail sounds great. And there's a lot of folks who are starting, who've been running small retail businesses for a while saying, oh, we've got a problem here. Well, I think even big retail businesses are feeling yes, that too. Yes, as well. Right? I yeah. mean, so wh- I, where, do you, where do you think this works for you? I mean, where do you think this goes for you? Do you push more into retail and commerce? Do you bolster the media side? Do you try to hedge your bets? I think you focus on the relationship. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is what we've been. And, and I, I'm sorry to go back to something that I know it's like it's hard to measure, right? But it's like we have this passionate audience and I think making sure that we are like the resource for them and like serving them really, really well and that they turn to us, they think of us like first when they're figuring out what they're going to cook for dinner or if they're buying someone, you know, another person who likes food, a holiday gift, um, you know, or if they need to, you know, they, they have a question about cooking and they know the place to come and ask. Yeah, I mean, we're always responding to them and listening to them. And one practical, you know, way that this comes into play is with our emails. So we're in the process of 
really sort of revisiting our email strategy, design, cadence, all of that, and really breaking our audience down into very specific cohorts or personas based on their behavior and based on what they've shown an interest in previously or not. And, you know, also giving them the opportunity to say, hey, I actually only want to receive emails that are editorial, or I'm not really interested in the writing. I just want to see your best new products. But also we can we can tell from the data what some of their preferences are. And so what we don't want to be doing going forward is trying to shove, you know, products down the throats of loyal readers who just aren't interested in shopping from us. It's um, a real tension though, right? Because that's eventually how you're going to make money is getting them to buy a pan. Well, right? no. I mean, we do, we do have advertising. We, sure. I mean, we still, it's not that, we're, we're not abandoning that. And no. there are also, you know, there are lots of, there are other, you know, revenue streams um, either in development or that we maybe haven't even thought of yet. Like, I, I, I think that we feel like if you have this passionate following, there are ways to monetize it um, successfully. I, I think if we're just trying to, like, get everyone to convert on our shop, we're going to lose people. How many users do you have? How many folks are visiting you? Well, across our platforms, it's around, I'd say, 18 million a month. And that includes Instagram. And then how, yeah. how many on the sites that you, you own yeah, or the like, properties you own? Yeah, our, our site. And that would be our email list. I mean, so, so 18 obviously, million all in. Yeah, that's, there's yeah. obviously um, Overlap. some, yes. Yeah. So again, like for a media company, pretty modest, <laughs> right? But you sold the, you sold, I want to make sure I get my numbers right. You sold the majority stake yeah. in the company for $83 million. Right? That's correct. Yeah. So I think a lot of folks would be very happy to turn their 18 million users into that kind of valuation um, and are probably scratching their head going, how, how did they do that and how do we do that? But maybe that's the second podcast. <laughs> part two. All right. Can we do part two at some point? Sure. We'd love, love to. to. Meryl, Amanda, thank you for coming by. Thank you for being patient with me. Um, texting me occasionally when you thought I had a problem with my writing. <laughs> Always open <laughs> to uh, critiques, compliments. Um, thanks to you guys for listening. This is Recode Media. We'll see you next week. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.